All right. We're back in Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Again, this is a longer psalm, 52 verses. So we're going to try to finish tonight. Give it our best shot. Psalm 89 on your sheet there, if you're looking at the the handout, um, we're we're starting in verse 19. So if you find verse 19 there, uh, that's where we're going to be jumping in. But let's do a little bit of review about the psalm so far, um, so we know where we are and we're uh, studying it in context. So, we looked at three big sections in this psalm with a different feel and a theme for each section. Does anyone remember the first section? What was the feel? What was the theme of the first section of Psalm 89? That's what we looked at. Praise. There we go. The second one was what? Covenant. And the last one was the lament, right? That where things get pretty, pretty dark pretty fast. And I made the point last week that we want to read the whole psalm with the crisis in mind, uh, even the praise um, that he will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever, and with his mouth he'll make known his faithfulness to all generations. We saw that the two attributes of God that are going to be repeated all throughout the psalm are his steadfast love and his faithfulness, and those two attributes form the basis for his covenant, for his promises to us. And we're going to see that those two attributes show up again throughout the rest of this psalm. Today, we're going to be starting in verse 19. And this is where he starts to recount the promise God made to David. And then we're going to see the lament starting in verse 32, where it seems like, from his perspective, that those promises to David have come to an end. So let's jump in. We just finished describing in the previous passages the steadfast love and faithfulness that his righteousnesses are exalted. He is, he, is, he is going to lift us up. He is our king. He's going to protect our king. And then verse 19, Of old you have spoken in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him. And what we see in these first two verses of this section, 19 and 20, we see God's choice. God's choice of King David. He's recounting the time when King David was anointed um, by the prophet Samuel, most likely. We see this passage in 1 Samuel 16, 6 through 13. And if you were to read that passage of Scripture, this is when Samuel is going to Jesse and all of his sons, and they line up, and and Samuel is looking at each son, and with each one, Jesse says, the Lord has not chosen this one. The Lord has not chosen this one. The Lord has not chosen this one. And then he says, all your sons here. And they said, there remains yet, yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send him, get him. For he will not sit down until he comes. And so he brings David. And the Lord says to Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. This is the one that God has chosen. And we see this choosing language here in this passage. He says, I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found 
David, with my holy oil, I have anointed him. And so as he recounts the promises to David, he begins with God's choice of David, and then what follows is God's promise. God's promise. God's choice always precedes God's promise. Those whom he chooses, he grants his great and precious promises. And so he chose David. And to, the David, to David whom he chose, he grants these promises. And I want to highlight all of the definite language in this promise. What repeated word do you see in verses 21, 22, 23? What repeated word? Shall. So that my hand shall be established. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. He is saying, this will happen. I shall do this. And let's notice for a moment the different components of this promise to David. Second here. This promise to David. In verse 21... He promises David divine power. My hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The next verse, verse 22, he promises divine security. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. Verse 23, he promises Divine deliverance from his enemies. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. And I want you to keep in mind these three components of the promise. Because we're going to see later in the psalm, the lament psalm, he's going to detail how all three of these things seem to have completely ceased. And when you combine that with the definite language here, I, he, I shall do this, I shall do this, I shall do this, it makes this contrast very stark. Verse 24, he says, again, there's the word shall, and what two attributes do we see in verse 24? That's right, my faithfulness, my steadfast love. We saw this in verses 1 through 2. We saw it again in verse 14. Let's, let's look back at those again real quick just to jog our memory. You can't, but if you have the sheet. Um, but verse 1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. My mouth I'll make known your faithfulness to all generations. His steadfast love will be built up. You will establish your faithfulness. Verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness Go before you. These two attributes, as we mentioned, are the, are, the two, are the very foundation of his covenant. And he promises David, my faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name, his horn shall be exalted. We saw this language earlier on in the passage as well, right here. Verse 17, for you are the glory of their strength and by your favor our horn is exalted. This is a sign of kingship. He's promising David, in my name, I will exalt you. Verse 25, I will set his right hand, his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. 
Do you hear any caveats so far? Do you hear any exceptions in, these, in this language? This is as definite and as sure as you can possibly get. He chooses David, and then he promises David, I will give you power, I will give you security, I will give you deliverance, and my faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with you. Starting in verse 26 through 29, we read about the fact that this covenant is a relationship, as is most of the covenants that God enters into with his people. When you enter a covenant with God, it always includes relationship. Verse 26, God says that King David shall cry to me, saying, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And in response, I will make him my f- the firstborn, the highest kings of the earth. Now, this firstborn language, maybe it reminds you of something. Uh, in fact, a psalm that we had looked at right near the beginning. Psalm 2 Verse 7, if you remember, Psalm 2 was a coronation hymn. This was, this was uh, um, a king being crowned. And in verse 7, it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so here in this covenant, he is in a relationship with God. You are my father. And in, when, they, when they enter this covenant, God makes King David his firstborn. Again, look in verse 28. What do we see? Steadfast Steadfast love. There it is again. And what will it do? I will keep him. My steadfast love. I will keep him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. Notice again this definite language. I will keep. I will keep. My covenant will stand firm. I will establish. This is so definite. This is so sure. There are no exceptions. In verse 30 through 37, I know I'm talking a lot, but I'm going to lay out the whole whole section here and uh, give us a feel for what is being explained before we move forward. Verse 30 through 37 we see this interesting exception clause. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commands, then I will punish their transgression. Also, is this, is this the hint? Is this the hint that, that he can revoke his covenant? That he can go back on his word if they sin? Is that what this passage is saying? No, how do we know that? He'll last forever, but so, so in this case, is the punishment a complete removal of the covenant? No. No. Which verse, where, where, which verse can you look, can we see that? 33 and 34. Right? So there is an exception here. If, if, then, right? If, then clause. Okay? If his children forsake my law... If they violate my statutes, then I will punish them. But what does verse 33 say? But 
I will not remove from him my what? Steadfast, Steadfast love. Or be false to my what? Faithfulness. Okay, here's this theme. We're seeing this theme again and again and again. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Here's what he says. Even when they sin, I will not renounce it. I'm not even going to revise it. Right? I'm not going to alter the words that went forth from my lips. So in this covenant, he makes room for the fact that his offspring, David's offspring, there will be, there will be people in his line who will reject God, sin against God, and in those cases, he will discipline them. He will punish them for their transgression. But even in that he will not remove from him his steadfast love or be false to his faithfulness. In this unconditional covenant, there is a conditional stipulation, but it will not revoke the covenant. This covenant was invincible against the sins of men. Now, why does this actually present a problem for the psalmist given his situation? What's that? He wanted to draw a wrong conclusion. I'm sure he was tempted by that. But so, right now, the crisis seems to be that the, the, the Davidic king has fallen, right? It could be very easy to conclude, well, obviously it's because we sinned, which they did, right? If you know your history of Israel. But, this passage says, Sin can't stop the covenant. So on God's side, he says, I will never revoke it. It's not going to change on my end. Well, what about the human end? What if we sin? No, it's not going to change it. So it's unchangeable from the human side, unchangeable from the divine side, which is really comforting. But given the crisis, puts the psalmist in a strange position, a confusing position, perhaps, where he's wondering, well, then what's going on? What's going on? Verse 35. God says, once for all I have sworn. And what did he swear by? His holiness. So he's swearing by himself. His own attributes, his own character. And he's done it what? Once for all. I will not Lie. I will not lie. And he reiterates again the promise. His offspring shall endure forever. And his throne as long as the sun before me. Now, it seems like the psalmist is looking at a time in Israel's history where the Davidic king is dethroned. So, What's going on? His throne will be as long as the sun before me, and yet there's no Davidic king on the throne right now. And God says that he swore once for all, I will not lie to David. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Are you sensing the 
tension here. Absolutely. Kurt. He never said that it would be a continuous rain. That's, that's a good hint at, uh, at where we might find our answer here in a bit. You can see how your typical Israelite would look at the promise and say, well, it definitely looks like a continual rain, right? There will always be a king on the throne. Um, so he's in a tough spot. Now, again, I do believe that the psalmist is writing this psalm from a place of confidence in God's attributes and God's promises. That he's not really pitting these two against each other. He's not trying to contradict himself. But he's trying to, he's proclaiming, remember how it begins, I am going to sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. He he's, starts this psalm out with confidence. And I believe he's expressing the Davidic covenant with confidence. If you want a background about where this Davidic covenant comes from, we find it in 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 16. This is the Davidic covenant. This is what he's citing in this section. He's quoting scripture back to God, basically. Here's the Davidic covenant that God says, to David in, in 2 Samuel 7. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, there's this choosing, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father." And he shall be to me a son. There's that relationship language we saw in the psalm. Here's the exception clause, conditional clause. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So the psalmist is quoting back to God the Davidic covenant. And he's saying, God, this is what you said, and I believe the psalmist is saying, and I believe it. Once for all, this is a done deal. He will not lie. We read in Hebrews 6, 17 through 18, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, you ask, is there anything that God can't do? Here's one, he cannot lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Our hope is rooted in the promises of of God. And I believe this psalmist has this hope in God's promises. But we're about to see one of the starkest contrasts in the book of Psalms. It would be hard to find another passage where such bedrock and firm confidence is juxtaposed with the language of lament that we see in the following verses. Look at verse 38. 
but now. Look at verse 38 and 39. Look at the verbs. What are those verbs communicating? Yeah. Does this look like a chastisement, a, a discipline, or something more? Looks like something more, doesn't it? You have cast off. You have rejected. You are full of wrath. You have renounced the covenant. Doesn't get more clear than that. You have defiled his crown. This is the language of separation. He's saying, God, this is what you said, but now you have rejected, you have renounced your covenant, which is founded on your steadfast love and faithfulness. You've renounced it. The God who said, I will not lie to David, has renounced his covenant and defiled his crown in the dust. Remember what was promised earlier? What were the three things promised to David. Very good. All right, so look at verse 40. Um, You've breached all his walls. You've laid his strongholds in ruin. Well, there goes the security. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of, of his neighbors. There goes the deliverance. Verse 42. What's going on in verse 42? He's he's strengthening their enemy. He promised David divine strength, but instead, he has exalted the right hand of his foes. Contrast that to verse 25. I will set his right hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. Talking about King David, I will extend his kingdom over the sea and the rivers. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You have turned back the edge of the sword. You have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease. You have cast his throne To the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. So, to put it bluntly, the psalmist is looking at a situation, and this is what he is saying. He's saying, What God promised would not happen has happened. Right? He knew when he cited the covenant that God would discipline his people for sin. He knew that. But this seemed to be going far beyond discipline. It looked like God was revoking his covenant. Now, it seems clear. We don't have a clear situation where this psalm, in what context this psalm was written. Yes, Greg. Thirty-two. Mm-hmm. I will visit the transgressions. I will. I'm not. I will repay. 
section is God saying, I will do this. I will promise this. Verse 38, the psalmist is saying, but you, God, have cast off and rejected. So there's, there's the difference there. We don't know the situation in mind. We do know that it seems pretty clear that it's a time in Israel's history when, when the crown, the Davidic throne, has been humiliated, has been destroyed, perhaps. Many scholars actually see similarities to this psalm to the fall of Jerusalem and Judah leading to the Babylonian captivity. And actually, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn over to 2 Kings chapter 24 because I think if we see the context for this psalm, it adds some incredible perspective. 2 Kings chapter 24. We'll be starting in verse 10. This is the account where, where, the, where the nation of Judah falls. Now, if you know your, your history of Israel, there's two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Which one falls first? Does anyone know? Israel, Israel falls first. They're the, they're the ones with all of the wicked kings. They didn't have any good kings. Judah had some. But it was only a matter of time. Eventually, Judah falls to Babylon as well. 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 10. And at the time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem the city was besieged, and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it, and Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials, and the king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign. Jehoiachin is in the Davidic line. He is a Davidic king, and he just surrendered to the king of Babylon. And in his absence, the king of Babylon, if you look down in verse 17, the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. We find out that this king Zedekiah, the uncle of Jehoiachin, eventually rebels against the king of Babylon. And in verse 20, it was for because of the anger of the Lord, it, uh, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence, and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Second Kings chapter 25, Jerusalem is besieged. And if you read through Second Kings chapter 25, Zedekiah's sons are killed in front of him, guaranteeing there's no offspring coming from Zedekiah to take the throne. He, they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and leads him away in chains to Babylon. We find that the temple is destroyed. The walls are destroyed. If indeed this is the backdrop of Psalm 89, read verses 38 through 45 again. You've cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruin. Talks about... um, the throne, casting his throne to the ground. It can't be David speaking because he's long dead. 
Right. This, 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 this most likely is not David speaking. Um, it's probably a psalmist looking. He could be in the exile, perhaps, if this is the time of the writing. It could be someone who's, who's looking at the time of exile, um, or it could, be, it could be a different king in a different time of history. But from that perspective, if this is indeed the perspective, it looks like the Davidic line has ended. It's over. God's promises have ceased. And so in verse 46 through 51, we see the request. And what does he request? We see, remember, we see that twice, actually. Verse 47 and verse 50. F- verse, yeah, verse 50. Remember how short my time is, and remember how your servants are mocked. What else does he request? Show himself. Yeah, verse 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Look in verse 49. What do we see? The steadfast love. Lord, where is your steadfast love? Which by your faithfulness you swore to David? God, where is it? Of old you swore to your beloved one, and you would not lie. You promised this this Davidic line, this Davidic throne. Where is it, God? I've seen it of old. I've seen your steadfast love and faithfulness time and time again through sinful king after sinful king. And you kept that line going even through all those sinful kings. And you punished. And you disciplined. But now, it's cut off. Where is your steadfast love? I think even in how long, there's an element of faith. How is that an element of faith? Right. Exactly. He didn't say it's hopeless. He didn't say it's. He didn't ask why did you lie. He says how long. How long will it be before you prove that your promises are true? Because I believe that's exactly the perspective that he's coming from. God, I'm going to sing of your steadfast love forever. I know what you have promised, and I know that you cannot lie. So how long? Because from my perspective, it looks like your covenant has ceased. Only God can resolve this. Verses 47 through 48 highlight the the, the vanity, the emptiness, the weakness of man. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? God, only you can. Remember, Lord, how your servants are mocked, how I bear in my heart the insults of the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. God, they're mocking. God, I'm weak. Remember that. And how long is it going to be? Would God be faithful to his promise? Would he keep the covenant that he swore to David? He is in a crisis, and it looks... Looks completely hopeless. We want to see God's grand plan as we zoom out. Before we do that, any, any questions, comments? Anything so far? Paul? In uh, verses 38 through 48, it sounds to me like the psalmist is making his conclusions. 
from a short-sighted view. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think he's, what he's describing is describing his, from his line of sight, from his perspective, what it looks like. Um, I still think he's depending on the promises of God. Um, I don't think he's trying to cast God's promises in doubt, but he is describing his short-sighted view of it, that it looks like he's renounced his covenant. And, and we could be guilty of that at times. Maybe once or twice. Yeah, we might do that every now and then. Uh, have a slightly short-sighted view. There was something else we did that was like that, where it was, it was just the, their views, which you can understand why you had that view. Yeah, Psalm 73. Okay, yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. The wicked prospering, right. right? Right, where we were reading his view of something, but mm-hmm. knowing he even knew down deep that that wasn't, true, wasn't real, it wasn't really real. Yes, exactly. So this happens a lot in the Psalms, Right. Which is great comfort to us, because we, like we said, we do that once or twice, uh, where we look at God's promises from our limited perspective, and it doesn't seem... We might even look at our, God's promises from our limited perspective and think, I don't see how in any way God can fulfill His promises. It seems like every possibility of it has been cut off. Is that a hand? Oh, sorry. Itch. Sorry. I hate it when I do that, you know? You itch and then... Yeah. <laughs> When someone, when you call on volunteers, all of a sudden, like, your nose really starts itching really bad, and you just can't itch it because you don't want to get called on. Any other questions? I, I think um, what to keep in mind, and maybe the psalmist is like this, is with God, nothing is impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, that he knows God's going to work it out some way because he's that big. Because mm-hmm. this is what he's done so far. What do we see the first section? God's attributes, right? And what is built on his attributes? His promises. His promises, good. And only on that foundation is his lament. And specifically, the two attributes here would be the Steadfast love and his faithfulness. I think this is a great roadmap for us as we bring our laments to God. That we can do so standing on the promises of God, which are standing on the attributes of God. And that's where we gain our confidence. Even when there's a dissonance, cognitive dissonance between those promises and God's attributes and our perspective as human beings. And this is exactly what he's complaining about and, and lamenting about. And I think in his prayer, he, the fact that he's praying and asking God how long shows that faith in his promises and in his attributes. He knows exactly who God is, and he knows exactly what God has said. I want you to turn back to 2 Kings chapter 25. All right? We, learned, we, we saw the fall of Judah, the fall of Jerusalem, Jehoiachin, the last king in the, the Davidic line, has surrendered himself to the king of Babylon. His uncle Zedekiah has been humiliated, his line is cut off, and he's marched to, to, to Babylon with his eyes gouged out in chains. Look in 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 27. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, 
Evil Marodak. Man, that's a name for a king of Babylon. Evil. In the name that he began, in the year he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments. And every day his life, of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. This isn't just some random historical account. What is being said here? The Davidic line isn't cut off, is it? This last Davidic king who just surrendered to Babylon, 37 years he's in prison. And in the 37th year, he's just graciously brought out, and we just see that it's like a, it's like a post-credits bonus scene, you know, like in movies, right? And, and he comes back out of prison. He's still there. The Davidic line has not been cut off. I think it's significant that he, he gives him a seat above the other kings. Yeah. Which you would think, well, like, why? Yeah. Why? Because God is in control, isn't he? And this is in a time when both Bab- when Judah and Israel are in ruins. Now, is Jehoiachin on the Davidic throne again? No, he's not. He's still in Babylon. While we don't see another, another descendant of David on the throne, we see his lineage continue. And Jehoiachin has a son named Shealtiel. And Shealtiel has a son named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel has a son named Abiud. And Abiud has a son named Eliakim. And Eliakim has a son named Azor. Azor has a son named Zadok. Zadok has a son named Achim. Achim has a son named Eliad. Eliad has a son named Eliezer. Eliezer has a son named Mathan. Mathan has a son named Jacob. Jacob has a son named Joseph. And Joseph becomes the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus. In the opening line of the New Testament, Matthew 1, 1, what do we read? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. What is the name, the title Christ? The anointed one. The angel tells Mary in Luke 1, 31 through 33, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Did God's promise and his covenant to David cease? Did he revoke his covenant? No. No. Did it take an unexpected turn? In humans' perspective, yes. Where they might have expected someone sitting on the physical throne continuously for all of time. Half of the lineage from between Abraham and Jesus, half of that Davidic line was in captivity. Half of those men were not on the throne. It's, well, there's going to be a, there's going to be even a future Davidic throne on earth as well. Christ is, Christ is reigning, right? Christ is, Christ is in control. 
the covenant did not fail. Its ultimate fulfillment was actually far greater than anyone could have possibly imagined. God had something in store far greater than just a physical king sitting on a physical throne in Jerusalem. He had promised for David a Messiah who would, who would take away the sins of the world and reign forever. Right now, this is what he's seeing. You're full of wrath. You've renounced the covenant. You defiled his crown. You've cast off. You've rejected. Oh, but just wait. Wait until you see what God has in store. And I believe that the psalmist had faith in this. Because what's the last verse? Blessed be the Lord forever and ever. Amen and amen. Amen. It's truly, let it be so. When all hope is lost and the psalmist looks at the desolation and the seeming end to the Vedic covenant, he knew somehow, somehow, God was going to keep his promises. Why did he know that? Because I know who he is and I know what he said. I know he's going to keep his promises somehow because I know who he is, his attributes, his steadfast love and faithfulness, and I know what he has said. Blessed be Yahweh forever. Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant name for God. How do we apply this today? What does this mean for us today? What are your thoughts? Exactly. Things look really bad right now, but, but we know it's not the end. Yeah. God's in control. God is in complete control. In fact, even when Jesus came as the son of David, his trajectory to the throne took another unexpected turn, didn't it? He comes into Jerusalem. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And then he's crucified and killed. And the disciples probably thought, once again, son of David, the Davidic covenant has been thwarted, once again, by his enemies. But Jesus rises again and ascends into heaven where he waits until all his enemies are placed under his feet. And the Bible tells us that while we wait for God to prove his promises to be true, people will mock. 2 Peter 3, 3-9, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Where's his covenant? Where's his steadfast love and faithfulness? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, but this, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up by, for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some men count slowness. There's the human perspective, right? But he's patient toward you not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And it, so we find ourselves right now in a time when the promises of God 
seem to be put away, on hold, whatever you want to say. Where's the promise of his coming? Where's this Davidic king who's going to come and reign? We're counting slowness from a human perspective. He's being patient. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We can be confident in the attributes of God. We can be confident in the promises of God. Because you will encounter times in your life, or perhaps you are encountering those times in your life right now, when it feels like the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God has ceased. And you're looking, where's the steadfast love and faithfulness of old that I saw at work, maybe in my own life, or in the life, life of, of your children in the pages of Scripture? Where is that? I don't see it. Are you going back to the, what God has said and who He is? And if you go back to that, you can bank on the fact that He cannot lie and His promises will remain true because He cannot do otherwise. God promises. We read in 1 Peter that He has granted unto us exceeding great and precious promises so that by them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of deceitful desire. We've been granted promises that we may become partakers of the divine nature. We've been given His promised Spirit, who is the down payment, the seal, the guarantee of our redemption, so that we will one day experience the future promise of our resurrection and glorification with Him for eternity. And those promises are sure. And we find ourselves in an in-between stage right now in life. Where we know who he is and we know what he said. And sometimes that's all you have to go on. Have you ever been in a situation where all you have to go on is what, who he is and what he has said? Because your circumstances don't speak to those two things at all. You can't say God is good, God has steadfast love and faithfulness because look at this situation right here and this situation points to his steadfast love and faithfulness. It's not always like that. You can't always look at a situation in your life and say, there's the promise of God being fulfilled. There's his word coming true. Most of life, it's God's word, God's attributes, and then there's your circumstances. And you're trying to connect the dots between the two. And you're having a really hard time doing it. To the point where you're like, I don't see it. But we see in Psalm 89, we see in the history of God's covenants through the centuries, Davidic covenant, new covenant, Abrahamic covenant, name a covenant. God is faithful. And, and the person who's in the exile couldn't have foreseen the grand scope of God's promise. But we have the benefit of seeing that grand scope. And we know his faithfulness and his steadfast love was proven true. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. This is always puzzling. And we still continue doing the same thing. 
would condemn God for because if he promised them if you do this, this yes. is going to happen. If you do that, this is going to happen. But we still go the wrong way. They went the wrong way, and they condemned God. Where's the promise? But he told you walk a certain way. That's then true. We do that a lot. There's a proverb that says when a when a when a fool experiences the consequences of his own decisions, he, his heart rages against God. Man, we do that a lot, don't we? And, and, and we, see, we see passages in his promises where he says clearly, while it won't revoke or remove his steadfast love, listen, if you sin, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chastise that. I'm going to discipline that. And then it happens. And we're like, What? <laughs> Even in the history of Israel, he said, here are the blessings, here are the curses. If you follow me, there'll be blessings. If you reject me, there'll be curses. He even, do you know what he says in those curses? You will be led away into captivity by your enemies. Which is exactly what is happening, it seems to be happening in this song. They're being led away. And yet we don't always connect those dots. But when you see all of Scripture, you're like, oh, yep, God, God's word is true. God is simply doing what he said, and he's going to continue doing what he said, even when our limited perspective sometimes even falsely accuses God of going back on his promises, when in fact he's being faithful to his promises in his discipline of us, because he promised that he would. Paul. Yeah. It really does. It's like, who put that in there? Yes. He did not allow his situation to lead him to a place of cursing God. Even in that, it led him to a place of blessing God because he knew who God was. I think even of, I don't know how connected this is, but um, Paul in Romans 7, where he's saying, the things I don't want to do, I'm doing, and the things I want to do, I'm not doing. And he's frustrated with himself, and he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And his next phrase is, thanks be to God (laughs) because of Jesus Christ. That, man, my circumstances are lousy. But you see that faith, that this punctuation mark at the end, it comes back to a place of confidence of faith in who God is. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Susan. Um, I have a curiosity. Yeah. Why I Well, that goes into a lot of different issues because it was really important for the Son of God to be born of a virgin, right? Because that was prophesied. While at the same time, the Davidic line will be brought down through the Father, right? So you have two promises, two prophecies that need to be fulfilled. And the other hand, he's born of a virgin, which means he's not born with a typical sin nature, the same lineage from Adam, right? And so he's in the Davidic line by virtue of Mary's marriage to 
Joseph, but he is not by blood because he had to be born of the Spirit. And so it's to see all the pieces connect, right? Imagine an Old Testament Jew saying, okay, the Messiah is the son of David, and the Messiah is born of a virgin. How does that work? And yet, when you zoom back and you see all of Scripture, God made it work. God is faithful. God is true. Yes, Lynette. What, what's the reference? For, can you give us the reference for that? Habakkuk, Habakkuk 3. What are the verses for that? 16 through 19. Look that up sometime. She's exactly right. This is a, it's a great cross-reference. Where, In context of captivity, saying, though the fig tree shall not blossom, though all of these bad things are happening, yet I will exalt in the name of the Lord. That's, that's the act of faith. Linda. She's really just kind of a, a no-name person that God chose. Aren't there two different lineages in different... There's two genealogies. Two genealogies. Right. So one, yeah, Matthew traces from Abraham to David to Jesus. And then the other one is in Luke, which is tracing from Adam, or it's tracing from Jesus to Adam. Right. They're not exactly the same people. Well, there's, it, it, it traces a different... A different uh, there's, there's, there's the line from David, or line from Adam, but then there's, in, in that genealogy, it talks about Rahab, it talks about Bathsheba, all these, all these individuals, but it's still obviously the same. He has the same lineage, but it, one's kind of tracing back a little bit further to Adam, as opposed to... Because I've always heard that people say that one was Joseph and one was Mary. No. Yeah, one was going back to Adam. The other one's going back from Abraham. But, but it, was, it was when Joseph and Mary, it was one had to be physical, the other had to be physical. Right. Right. Well, the other, other genealogy doesn't yeah. trace back to... No, no, I'm just saying there are two different Yeah. Does the, correct me if I'm wrong, does the, does the Luke genealogy lead to Mary? Right. So it's, right. Yeah, we don't know where Mary comes from. She just kind of picked out of nowhere. Spread that hope. Share that news.
Anything else? Bob. One of the things that gets us hope that Jesus is coming again not too far in the future is the reestablishment of Israel as a nation. <coughs> that happened in what, 47 and 48. <coughs> yeah. Yeah, so there's promises to national Israel all throughout the Old Testament. And there's a period of time where they're like, well, there's no nation of Israel. So what's, how's God going to fulfill his promises down the road? Right? And through the reestablishment of Israel, you just see a little glimpse. Oh, maybe God can do anything. Maybe he can be faithful to his promise. Right? And uh, with all, God, all things are possible. Aren't we funny? <laughs> yeah, aren't we funny? Yeah, we're, man, we are. It's, it's, we understand why Jesus, when he's on this earth, he's looking at his disciples and he's like, man, guys, <laughs> how long do I have to be with you? Like, how, how long do I have to explain this to you? Right? You think of the, the, the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, right? And then he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're like, oh, we didn't bring bread. That's why he mentioned leaven. It's like, no, guys, I provided bread for you, like thousands of loaves. You would think by this point I'm not concerned about bread, right? But boy, are we slow. And, but God is good and he's patient, right? He's patient and he's faithful and his love is steadfast. It's not dependent on our foolishness. But he is, he is faithful even in our slowness and our foolishness. Psalm 89 is a wonderful testimony. of God's attributes, God's promises, and his faithfulness even when circumstances seem like that faithfulness has ceased. God is good. Next week, I believe it's Psalm 94, is the one that I picked. Uh, Psalm 94, so you're more than welcome to check that out uh, as we get ready for next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for your word. What a, what a joy it is just to scan across the pages of Scripture and to see how everything fits together and how your goodness and your promises and your faithfulness are sure and they're proven time and time and time again. And yet we still find ourselves in our little lives doubting and asking, where's his promises? Where's God? Is he still good? Lord, I pray that we would root our confidence not in our circumstances, but in Scripture because it is there that we see who you are and what you have said. And I pray that would be the source of our confidence. That even in our circumstances, we'd be able to shout out with the psalmist, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. We thank you for who you are, despite of who we are so many, so many.